Hello folks, this is episode two of my Q&A at Look Just Tell Me What To Do. Today, we're going to be looking at questions like what makes for an ideal patient-therapist relationship? Are there any types of people that I refuse to work with? What's the most common way someone will sabotage their own success? For answers to these questions and more, keep listening. So yeah, I'm doing this thing, this Q&A. It's new. I've got a Patreon because I couldn't help myself. So if you become a member for just a few dollars a month, you will be able to submit questions. You will receive a worksheet specific to whatever questions were answered. So like little little helpful tips and tricks, such as communication skills. And I'll just write a bunch of cool stuff and I'll send it to you. And also bonus content. So things that you didn't get to hear on here. Who did the secret show? There's a secret show. Someone does it somewhere. Anyway, so secret bonus content. It's great. The link to my Patreon is in the program notes. I hope you check it out. And if you submit a question, I will not use your name unless you say, hey, you can use my name. Okay, so here we go. Question number one. What is the most common way someone will sabotage their own success? This was submitted by the fabulous MC. So the guy who's kind of cornered the market on this question is his name is Gay Hendricks and he wrote The Big Leap and he talks about people having an upper limit issue where you kind of rise to a certain level in your job or your relationship or whatever it is and you kind of stop and that's your upper limit. And he has all these theories about why people come to that. So I recommend you read his book, but I've got some of my own ideas. I think people just get uncomfortable. They don't like moving into new situations. So there's this word homeostasis. Homeostasis is a word that describes a system that kind of balances out, even if it's messed up. So, you know, let's say you've got a job you don't like, you're in a relationship you don't want to be in, but it's kind of stable. You're used to it. And systems inherently resist change. So even if something sucks, you'll stick with it. Like another example is you think of like a mobile, you know, that those little things that spin around. So let's say there's a family and in the family, let's say the dad's an alcoholic. So take a beer bottle and put it on the mobile and suddenly the mobile goes all wonky because this heavy beer bottle's hanging off of it. Let's say that when the, the dad comes home wildly drunk, gets into a fight with mom, kids are like, oh, cool, parents are fighting, let's light out. And the kids leave the house and run all over the place and raise hell. So let's say dad gets sober, comes home, doesn't get into a fight with mom, checks on the kids, realizes the kids are running out of the house, and all hell breaks loose because dad is like, um, the kids are running all over the place. Let's go take care of them. Let's go control that. And suddenly all hell breaks loose because the system has changed and gotten healthier. So so sometimes change, even if it's good, or especially when it's good, can be really chaotic and kind of destabilizing. I can always tell in my line of work, where I work with addiction, as you can probably tell, I can always tell when someone's getting healthier because the people around them are getting pissed off at them because they're setting healthy boundaries. They're, you know, not answering the phone when their mother or sister or brother or son calls every 15 minutes, or they're not hanging out with their alcoholic friends who want to just party. People get upset because they're setting healthy boundaries and communicating in a way that's clear and authentic. They're changing the system. Nobody likes it. Systems resist change. So I think that part of what happens is, is that it's not that people necessarily self-sabotage. I think they just don't like doing new things. Things. <laughs> you know, they don't like new situations. With new territory comes new enemies. So you start, a, you do a whole new thing, start a new job, you move to a new place. It's the devil that you don't know. It's the things that you like, what's going to happen? What's going to befall me? It's going to be unexpected. It's going to be weird. So this is the thing. Rarely do I see people self sabotaging as such. It's more like they make choices, they, they just don't do the thing. And I think oddly, we like the term self-sabotage. And I think that's kind of an almost like a weird ego trip because then we can <laughs> sort of hold ourselves above a person and say, look, they're not doing the thing. They're, they're self-sabotaging. They're hurting themselves. And we can, we can give it this fancy name and you're, you're doing this thing to you. 
It's like, it's like self-sabotage becomes the spectator sport of like watching other people fail. And I, I realize it's also sometimes we feel frustrated when we don't see a friend or a loved one, you know, helping themselves and changing their life. But honestly, I really don't often see people really break things and smash things in the name of not moving forward. I don't see a lot of self-sabotage in my practice. I just see people making poor choices based on their comfort level with things. So they will date the asshole or they will get the job that will take away all their free time. And is that a form of self-sabotage? Is, is someone who relapses on drugs self-sabotaging or do they just really like drugs? Are they just really stressed out? They made some bad choices and they end up using cocaine again and, and losing everything. Is that self-sabotage? I guess it is. There's not as much intent behind it. I kind of take issue with the idea, I think sometimes that there's this sort of unconscious desire to crush myself. I think a lot of times it's just passivity and discomfort. And along those lines, there's an also an, an identity thing where you have a certain identity about who you are. And I don't really quite understand this, but I sometimes I think people quote unquote self-sabotage or don't do the thing or resist change because they don't want to change their identity. I remember when I started out as a therapist, I had a hard time raising my rates because it was like, well, I'm not that therapist who's worth X number of dollars per hour. That's not who Benjamin Rusick is. You know, I'm just a small time guy. I just couldn't envision myself being something that I felt that I wasn't when really what I really needed to do was understand that I was stepping into my own power, not necessarily by charging more, but by by sort of announcing myself as, yes, I'm a clinician and I can do this. Did I self-sabotage? I guess maybe. Again, it's very easy to say, look, he was self-sabotaging. Look how smart you are. You were able to say that I was self-sabotaging. You're awesome. I'm going to give you a PhD in psychology for being able to say that. When really it was just, it was passivity and discomfort and clinging to an old identity. Anyway, that's my two cents on that. Uh, MC also asks, what makes for an ideal patient-therapist relationship? Honestly, you just got to like each other. <laughs> Rapport is everything. Rapport, respect, and connection, just like in any relationship, in any friendship or working relationship, it's just the basics have to be in play. Also, the case has to be in my wheelhouse. If it's on my specialty is addiction, family systems, archetypal psychology. So if it's in my wheelhouse where I'm confident and comfortable, I do a better job and the rapport and the respect and the communication kind of unfold more naturally because I'm more relaxed. I do take cases that are outside of my expertise. It's important to stretch, of course. Don't want to self-sabotage, right? Anyway, they also need to like my style. I'm pretty direct as a therapist. I'm, people have called me pretty East Coast. I get asked that a lot. Are you from the East Coast? No, I'm from San Francisco. It makes me wonder if people from San Francisco have some sort of weird local attitudinal accent. I don't know. Ask my brother. He's also from here. At least I think he is. And yeah, I'm pretty direct. I'm pretty cavalier, which gets me in trouble sometimes. But I also know how to hold back and be restrained and all that. So part of it is a style thing. Also, I have to be delicate with this one because I have to not sound like an egomaniac. But Jung said that, you know, a, th a therapist can't successfully help his or her patient if they themselves are not more advanced than the patient. And I don't want to say I'm more advanced, but I have to be more advanced somewhere. Like if I had a patient who was, say, super spiritually in touch with himself or herself, and just really, really developed, knew all about dream psychology and all this stuff, but they couldn't get themselves out of bed in the morning. They couldn't keep their apartment clean. They couldn't stay on a healthy exercise regimen. I'm more advanced in those areas and I wouldn't be focusing on the spiritual stuff. So there has to be an area that I'm, that I really know more about. You know, my old therapist said that the elixir to all things in this world is increased consciousness. And my job as a therapist is to bring more consciousness to my patients in one form or another. Now that doesn't mean that I deliver it. It could be engendered just by the relationship, just by the, the patient and I have a really awesome connection and, and we just sort of experience this heightened consciousness thing. And I don't know how to define that. That is definitely a part of it. But at the end of the day, I have to be on my stuff. 
there has to be something I, I can bring to the table that the patient cannot. Like my current therapist, the one after Seymour is a Jungian analyst and she's 75 and she knows way more than I do about really everything. I think I could beat her at chess, but I would not want to meet her in a dark alley. She would win. And uh, that's important to me. It's important that she knows more than I do. Also, the last thing I'll say is I think what makes for an ideal patient relationship is being able to to stick together for a long time. So like a well-worn bicycle chain that, that sort of gets worn down with the gear. So the gear and the bicycle chain kind of connect that it's like any patient therapist relationship can be kind of made to be ideal eventually. I think if you guys just keep working together and stick it out. MC also asks, are there any types of people you refuse to work with? Well, yes, this dovetails well into the last question, because if it's something that's way outside of my expertise, no. So that would be eating disorders. I don't do that because I have an eating disorder and I'm just, I draw a blank, man. I'm not good with those kind of clients. Even if I'm really well developed in some other area, I find that I've got such a blind spot for that. And it triggers me so much, my own eating stuff, that I just, I can't focus in the session not my wheelhouse. Don't work well with borderline personality disorder. Too dramatic, erratic. I feel like that disorder is is so internally dysregulated that it dysregulates me and I can't do my job, which is weird because I work great with other things like, you know, OCPD and narcissism and dependent personality disorder. All none of that stuff seems to bother me, but that one does. I don't quite get it. Or I don't also work with people who have current acute psychotic symptoms, so schizophrenia. I wouldn't work with someone who was actively schizophrenic and hearing voices. That wouldn't be appropriate. I don't work with anybody under the age of eight. I think you need special training for that. Children under the age of eight, nonverbal cues are really important. And even though I'm a big, I'm big into intuition and hey, a psyche is a psyche and anyone can do therapy on anybody. I think that a child, I think you really do need special training for that. This is to say that I'll work with just about anybody else, and I'll even work work with somebody who's pretty hateful or anti-Semitic. I'll tell you a story. My my therapist told me the story about a guy who was anti-Semitic, and the guy had written him Seymour a check, and uh, the check had bounced, and the guy showed up for a session, and Seymour put the check on the the table like, hey, it's bounced, and the guy looked at him and said, good Jew, and Seymour's like, what? It's like good Jew, meaning he was being a good Jew because he was so focused on the money, like, hey, your check bounced, motherfucker. Um, and Seymour said that he had no problem working with these guys because what would happen was even though they would quote unquote hate Jews, they'd ended up falling in love with him and they would hit this sort of zone of really intense cognitive dissonance, like, well, I hate Jews, but I love you. And so, you know, and he would just let that play out. And uh, I, I, th- I think that's, well, brave of him. Next question. This is from Michael. Uh, what would you say is the single most underappreciated mental health aspect? Um, probably stress. There's lots of hype around anxiety and depression these days. And I feel like they're really well played out. And that's great. And there's a lot of attention on that. But stress just seems to make everything worse. Like why treat anxiety and depression if the person is just working themselves to death, not exercising, not doing any self-care and um, not getting their eight hours of sleep? If I can tell someone to, hey, get some sleep, go on vacation and go <laughs> take some jujitsu, you know, why would I need to focus on your mood disorder or the conflict you had with your parents or the whatever childhood issue you're working on? Because if you're stressed out, if you're not taking care of yourself, none of that shit matters. And I know a lot of therapists do cover it, but I'm aggressive about it with my clients. Like it's one of the first questions I ask, like, how much sleep are you getting? You know, are you exercising? What's your diet like? Another example is like somebody whose back goes out a lot. A lot of times those folks don't exercise enough. Their core is not stable. Their back muscles are not stable. And it's like, you can go and spend thousands of dollars on physical therapy when you really, what you need is like yoga and Pilates, you know? So yeah, I I think what's underappreciated are the basics. 
Next question. How do you determine when, you, when to seek help? I'll say very simply, it's when your whatever neurotic behavior, whatever phobia you have, self-confidence issue you have, anger issue you've got, drug issue you've got, whatever it is, is affecting your way of life and you keep doing it. And it's pervasive over a long period of time and you're noticing the pattern. You know when things are affecting your life negatively. You're losing sleep. You're not making the money you want. You're not having the relationships you want. And when those types of things keep happening and it's clearly connected to some self-confidence issue or something like that, yeah, get yourself to a therapist. I will also say, Seymour always said, there's those who need therapy and those who could benefit from it. Anything you can do to raise your consciousness, as I was saying before, is what you want to do. Like, why wouldn't you go see a therapist? Don't wait for a neurotic thing to throw you off to fuck up your life before seeking therapy or seeking some activity or practice that raises your consciousness. That can be going back to school, that can be taking up a new hobby or, you know, reading a new book, whatever it is that beefs up your consciousness, go do that thing. Um, this next one is from Greg. This is a good question. How do you know when to try harder and be more disciplined and kind of be gritty or just love yourself and take a breather? And I, <laughs> I love this question because the internet is really into loving yourself lately and taking a breather, which is why I hate it because I hate anything that's popular. But I think that it's sort of a reaction to the, the very Western, very American, you know, go, 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 do the thing, just do it, all that crap. I think that when to really start loving yourself and stop being so gritty is when you start seeing diminishing returns. You know, there's only so many days of the week that you need to get up at 5 a.m. and go run a fucking triathlon, which is what everyone's, everyone's into triathlons these days or a half marathon or whatever stupid thing that they're running up and down hills and biking across the freaking Pacific Ocean. I don't know where you, your body starts breaking down and things stop working where, you know, you're making a lot of money, but your relationships are suffering or you're not getting enough sleep. So you know when to slow down. I will say there is also a time to stop loving yourself and sitting on your laurels and get off your goddamn ass and go do the thing. But that's for another podcast. The next thing is, I get this question a lot. How do you know when you found the one or you want to be in this relationship or that relationship? I kind of talked about this last time, but a lot of being in a relationship is about choosing and sort of signing a contract with yourself. Like I choose this person. I talked last time about a good relationship is all about what you're willing to tolerate. Whatever darkness in your person if you're willing to deal with that and say, okay, I, I can live with that. It's about deciding, yeah, I'm going to do this with this person and come hell or high water, lowering your expectations a little bit and just deciding that this is the car that I want to buy. I know that sounds really cold, but it's kind of true. It's a non-romantic decision. Get, deciding to be in a really amazing relationship with somebody is a non-romantic decision. It's a practical one. And I know that's a very unpopular opinion, but it is really true. You have to choose somebody in a deep way. I am going to make this work with this person. Now, that's not to say that that person can't fuck up royally and you should leave them. I'm not saying that. Uh, last question. Rich <laughs> asks, how are you? <laughs> Rich, I'm doing great. I'm making these podcasts. They're fun. Uh, Rich, I started a Patreon. Isn't that cool? People can subscribe to it. Uh, no, I'm, I'm doing really well. Uh, Rich does jujitsu with me. He's really cool and he's fabulous and he's very good, he's a black belt. And um, I'm talking about Rich, not me. How am I, how am I doing? Rich, I'm doing great. I'm working a ton, writing a lot. My only big problem these days, Rich, is sleep. I'm not great at sleep and I'm trying to get better at it. But thanks for asking, Rich. I hope you are good too. All right, folks, that's it for today. Just to recap, if y'all wanna subscribe, you can. Just check out the link to the Patreon in my program notes. It's there. Thank you for listening and catch you next time.